Welcome to episode 69 of Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn. Today's guest is Mark Sullivan. Mark is a drug development expert and the founder of Medicines Development for Global Health. Along with his colleague, John Reader, Mark was featured in the Development Policy Centre's Aid Profile series in 2019 and was nominated for the Mitchell Humanitarian Award, which they jointly won in Canberra in February of this year. Mark's aid profile, authored by Robin Davies of the Indo-Pacific Centre for Health Security, detailed the incredible efforts Mark and John have undertaken to end river blindness, a debilitating and historically neglected disease afflicting tens of millions of people in sub-Saharan Africa. In this episode, we discuss what river blindness is and broadly why some diseases are neglected by the pharmaceutical sector. Mark explains why he founded a not-for-profit organisation dedicated to developing drugs that are unlikely to be commercially viable in the long term. We discuss moxidectin, the drug Mark has developed to treat river blindness. It's a fascinating insight into the drug research, development and licensing process and the important role that the World Health Organisation plays in this equation. It's also a great example of how the aid effort and the private sector can work together for transformational development outcomes, especially in Australia where we have so much medical expertise. Although we recorded this episode in mid-February before we knew that coronavirus would be declared a pandemic by the World Health Organisation, this is a very topical episode. Mark shines a light on how equipped global health systems are to respond to disease outbreaks and how this is manifestly different in more developed and less developed countries. As well as disease outbreaks, this episode looks at health equity and how Mark has dedicated his career to using his very technical skill set to make big changes to healthcare accessibility globally. Moving forward, Mark is turning his attention even more to diseases here in Australia, including scabies, which continues to afflict Indigenous communities. Before we go, we're proud to present this episode from the Development Policy Centre, a leading think tank for aid and development at the Australian National University, serving Australia, the region and the global development community. Check out all of the centre's aid profiles at devpolicy.org slash aidprofiles. If you know someone who's made an outstanding contribution to development, nominate them for a future aid profile by writing to devpolicy at anu.edu.au. That's all from me. Enjoy the episode. Okay, Mark, thank you so much for being on the show. You're welcome. Now, you've dedicated a lot of your career in recent years to fighting river blindness. So I think to begin with, what is river blindness? So river blindness is a, uh, it's actually a, a worm disease. It's caused by a particular worm that's spread by a black fly. The black fly uh, bites people, transmits the worm, and uh, and then spreads from person to person. It's a very long-term illness. It causes uh, a skin condition that uh, is manifest by by changes in the skin pigmentation, by severe itching, by damage to the skin. Uh, but the worms move throughout the skin and uh, and eventually into the eye and over many years can cause eyes da- eye damage and, uh, and some people blindness. So it's a really deeply unpleasant condition. Um, like most parasitic diseases, it's it's learned to live with humans over a very, very long period of time. So it's very well adapted to, to um, infect us and uh, uh, and it affects people in really the the most challenging parts of the world. It's sub-Saharan Africa is where it's found. And it's uh, it's also there's a small pocket or, or some pockets in South America, but essentially it's sub-Saharan Africa. It sounds horrific and debilitating. I'm sure you have 
met people who have the disease in recent years. What was your experience of them? Um, so the people that I know um, who've had the disease or have the disease are very stoic about it. It's one of those chronic diseases that you, um, you, you tend to live with and you find your way to, uh, to cope with the symptoms. And so um, for people who, who have it, I believe they just essentially get on with life and, and do their very best to, um, uh, to ignore it as, as best that they can. But you know, over a very long period of time, um, it's very hard to ignore. It becomes such a, uh, such a feature of your life. And so the, the, uh, I've only met a few people with uh, the condition and they are, as you would imagine, incredibly stoic about it. Yeah, I don't think I'd be quite as, um, as stoic as they are. Now, your involvement with river blindness began because you are a drug development expert with extensive experience in the pharmaceutical industry, uh, but also a strong appreciation of the not-for-profit sector, which is which is a really interesting um, concept for me because I, I, as you mentioned in your speech last night, um, pharmaceutical companies aren't always seen as being in alignment with the not-for-profit sector. So can you talk about that and talk about how you were able to apply your skills from from that world to the fight against river blindness? So it's it's interesting that the, we expect a lot from the pharmaceutical industry, but you, you've just got to remember that the pharmaceutical industry is a for-profit industry. It is there to make profit. It is um, shareholder-owned. So uh, many of us in our pension schemes, if we have one, have probably got shares in the companies. So they are... Uh, they're there to to return on investment for investors, and uh, and yet we're really asking them also to address the world's health problems, which uh, to me is um, it's a, a tall ask and and a, a kind of a side show for them. Their job is to make money, um, so that that really leaves a very large um, unmet need and a very large uh, commercial problem. Uh, so one of the things that I could say, well, perhaps, you know, perhaps an analogy might help. You know, it's, it's a little bit like the, the private health care system being asked to provide public health. You know, the people who work within the private health care system are as dedicated doctors, nurses and, and health care providers as people in the public system. But um, their job is essentially to provide health care and make a return. The pharmaceutical industry is a little bit like that. Uh, it doesn't mean that I, working for the large companies that I've worked for, um, didn't care. Um, and most of my colleagues and friends and uh, also felt the same way. The, the issue is that um, there aren't public pharmaceutical companies. There aren't companies that are funded by other sources where the cost of doing all of that development work is, is covered by the public purse. It's, uh, and, and that's really one of the key issues. Even there are a handful of, of what they call um, product development partnerships, which are really in that not-for-profit sector. And uh, they're almost without exception funded by um, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, um, Medicines and Frontier. Some of the governments do support those as well, but you know, they're a rare thing rather than the genuine alternative to the for-profit sector. So my interest has always been in in medicine medicines and the development of those medicines. I'm really technical in the in the development process and all that that involves. Uh, so that's been 
always my core area, my core interest, and uh, and the structure in which I receive my salary has mattered less to me. I've gone to work uh, in my previous roles knowing that I was making a difference and, and that's always been the motivating force and, um, and drawing a salary. Now I have established a not-for-profit, I still draw a salary, I, uh, but I'm able to work on diseases that are um, perhaps not going to be financially um, successful but will still be impactful. And I think I've found a way to fund that at least to some extent. It's really exciting. When you say you're involved in the technical side of the drug development, do you get to go in the lab? Uh, I go When I go in a lab, um, <laughs> I'm normally wearing kind of, you know, um, something that uh, makes you look very silly and you... Um, keep me away from the bench, basically. <laughs> so the, the it's really interesting that the there's really two phases of drug development. There's research and development. We, we blur those words, R&D, like it means something, but really there is research and there is development, and I only do development. So the research setting is the, is the creative stuff. It's the it's discovery of a, of a new mode of action or a, a mechanism. Uh, or in my particular area, it's a discovery of a of a class of drugs or a class of chemicals and what they might do. Um, whereas development is turning a particular compound, a particular selected compound, into a medicine that's available for prescription. So it's a very structured process. It's a it's a little bit. I often use the tortured analogy of um, developing an aircraft. It's a little bit like that. Uh, it's like turning a blueprint or a diagram into something that flies and that can be bought by airlines. And it's very much that type of process with the pharmaceutical industry where you are uh, essentially what we kind of say is we, we're revealing the truth about a drug. It is what it is. You know, it has the safety profile that it has. It has the efficacy profile that it has. You can't change any of those things. You can tweak around the edges, but you can't change it. It is what it is. So our job is to reveal that and to work out whether that risk benefit is worthwhile and has a benefit to the patient. And if it doesn't, it won't get up. And if it does, then it will. So uh, so what I do is take the product of the researcher's effort uh, and then we turn that into the product by working out how to manufacture it, how to manufacture it at scale. Uh, we run the necessary toxicology studies. The um, We characterize the way that the body handles it, uh, which is the, the pharmacokinetics and then what it does to the body and to the disease under study, which is pharmacodynamics. And those things are done through a series of iterative building experiments done to a particular quality um, and they're called uh, good and then you insert the term manufacturing, clinical um, research, good practices that are specified in the regulations. You have to do them to that standard and that's where the cost lies. And then you compile that dossier into a very substantial dossier. It literally fills a truck. Uh, and uh, and that goes to the regulators who then review it. And it's like submitting to a judiciary. They have um, they they will review your data. They will go through and audit everything uh, and come back to you with their questions and make a decision whether or not they agree with your assessments. Now, of course, the drug that we're talking about is moxidectin when we're discussing river blindness. Um, now, you uh, 
obviously played an instrumental role in getting moxidectin to the point that it is today. And you did that with John Reader of the World Health Organization. Um, what was the role of the World Health Organization in, in the process of getting moxidectin approved? And I understand that the process was quite unconventional. Yeah, it was. It's just, I mean, it was a pivotal role to answer the question in short, but it, it, this is a this is a 20-year journey, which is, I have to say, fairly typical for drugs in the neglected tropical disease space, which is the space that we work in. And they're neglected for um, very obvious reasons that they're unlikely to ever generate the return. So you'll, you'll spend the same amount of money you would in a normal drug, which is sort of, I would say, moxidectin's probably around $100 million. Most drugs are between $100 and $300 million. You'll spend exactly that amount of money with exactly the same risk of it never making the, um, ma never making it through the registration process. But uh, at the end of the day, no one's going to give you the $300 million or $100 million or whatever the real number is back because you can't sell it. So, uh, so drugs that are in this field tend to have a pretty tortured, difficult history. And, uh, and moxidectin is exactly that. So it was actually the, the tropical diseases research team at the World Health Organization that identified moxidectin as a potential new treatment for river blindness. And that was back in the late 90s. Um, this drug had been used in the veterinary space for um, probably a couple of decades by then already. So it was a very well-known medicine for the veterinary world. And this tropical diseases research group, which is now led by John, it wasn't at the time, but it, it is now, approached the company who had the, um, the veterinary product and said, would you be interested in working with us to see if we could take it through for human health? And so that's what, um, that's how that started. And, uh, and so the company started to work with the, the group at the WHO throughout the next 12, 11 years, that sort of time frame. And at that point, the company that was co-working with WHO uh, decided to terminate its involvement and handed all of the data and the rights over to the WHO, which left them really holding the bag and having to find a way to complete the necessary work that they needed to do. And it was a couple of years after that that we approached them and asked them what they were doing with the drug. And that's how the relationship started. So that was 20, end of 2013. Yeah, I mean, it's, I guess for those of us not working in the pharmaceutical industry, you don't realise what a huge span of time it is between discovering that a drug might work and it actually being out on the market available for humans. Like it's massive, like 20 years you said there, which yeah. is a, a normal amount of time. It is. In fact, even if you've got a, so in industry, if you're doing a high priority drug for a high priority disease where there's going to be a substantial revenue return, it's, um, I mean, five years would be incredible. Um, 10 years would be probably closer to the truth. And it's because you're generating data and responding to that and you're doing it in a in such an iterative way. And that's not because it's slow or uh, deliberately slow or being cumbersome. That's trying to go fast. But you need to answer certain questions in a, in a very um, prescribed process that allows you to decrease the risk uh, early on. So we, we often talk about kill fast and kill early when comes to a drug, you're trying to um, make it, um, you almost have the, the negative view of the world that the drug should not 
proceed to the next stage of development unless it proves you wrong. So we will often view the next experiment and design the next experiment to make it fail. And then if it doesn't, then good and you move on from there. So uh, the process is the generation of lots of data in this stepwise manner that is actually largely prescribed as well by the regulators. So this isn't something you just kind of sit there and make up. You you follow a path where you're generating the data needed to to get to the next stage. And, um, and that's what takes the time. It just takes time to work through those experiments. And in parallel, the thing that, again, people in, uh, you know, the broader community have probably little opportunity to see exactly what goes into the manufacture of their medicines as well. You know, the manufacture is probably the main reason, maybe I'm just a little tainted, but um, the, one of the primary reasons that drugs fall over is because you can't make them at scale. You, know, you can make them in a small batch and then the moment you go into a bigger batch, the technical ability to actually manufacture it at scale is uh, goes and you can't work it through. Um, the, the regulations around manufacture are incredibly stringent and, uh, and it's very easy to fall over because of manufacture. So it's, it's uh, one of those things that um, you, you probably, we talk about as though it's clinical trials and more clinical trials and more clinical trials. And clinical trials would be probably half the story. Now, in terms of where moxidectin is now up to, it's a huge achievement that it has been approved by the FDA for use in humans to combat river blindness. Um, it, I understand it's not yet being prescribed in the field. Is correct. that correct? And it when is. would we expect that to start? So it's it's probably a couple of years away still. So once you get a... Uh, it's very unusual as well to have a drug come through this, what we call a stringent regulatory authority approval. So there's a, a bunch of stringent regulatory authorities around the world that have the resources and the experience of reviewing new medicines. And obviously the US FDA is one here in Australia, the TGA, EMA, and so on. There's a, there's a group of them. Um, so that's great. But what that gives you is, is a license to prescribe the medicine in that country. And so what you would generally do is you would look for approvals in each of the countries where you're planning to prescribe your medicine. The issue for us is that Sub-Saharan Africa is um, a broad collection of different countries and they tend to look to the World Health Organization for their approvals or for their guidance and for their, uh, for their management of a particular disease. So our step now is to move from a US approval, uh, which of course we know the disease isn't in the US. It's actually a really lovely gift of the American people to um, to review a drug like this, which they know isn't really applicable for um, a vast amount of their people, uh, but they do the review and they um, get an approval. So it does cover American people, but it's really for people who have the disease in other parts of the world. So we then take that approval and we go to the World Health Organization and we provide them with additional data as well. So we're, um, one of the things that we, we need to do is to have a, a paediatric um, uh, data set to complement what we already have, which doesn't include quite young children. The children um, that have been studied so far are only down to the age of 12, so now we're going down to the age of four. And you do that obviously very carefully in a very controlled way. So we're running that experiment um, in Ghana, and uh, that's being done, again, with the World Health Organization's involvement. 
And then uh, once we have that, plus some additional broader safety data, we'll go back to the World Health Organization, it's a different group from John's group, um, who will review the information and make a decision about recommending its use in Africa. Uh, and uh, and so that's the, the next stage for us. It's probably a couple of years. Yeah. But based on what you've said there, there have been trials. So you have seen the drug work effectively in adults with river blindness? We have. So we've the studies that that were used to seek the approval were a direct head-to-head comparison against the current standard of care, which is a drug called ivermectin, which is one of probably one of the best drugs um, genuinely in history. Um, The uh, discoverers of ivermectin won the Nobel Prize for Medicine in 2015, so it tells you how well regarded that drug is. So in river blindness, our drug is superior. Uh, It is statistically superior. Superior is a word that you have to be really careful with in our field because it has to have a statistical backing. So it, uh, moxidectin is superior to ivermectin. And so that's why it's very important that we act quickly to get it out to people. Uh, and so that's why we're really focusing on the studies that we need to do and the WHO process so that we can then begin to roll it out more broadly. And um, that will be through various NGOs that are working in the field in in Africa already. We won't uh, set up our own distribution. That will be through existing distribution networks and existing NGOs. It's quite pertinent that we're talking about this drug, given that um, I think it was something like 6% of the world is affected by coronavirus at the moment, or a a very large proportion uh, of, of those are in quarantine due to coronavirus, most of whom would probably be in China. It raises questions about our global health system and how quickly we can mobilise to respond to threats. And, I mean, as you say, 20 years for moxidectin, still a few years off actually being prescribed on a large scale in the field. What does that say about our ability to respond to outbreaks like coronavirus and other things if it takes that long? It's it's the reality. The reality is that unless there's something on the shelf that we can already use... Uh, you know, it's not realistic for us to even contemplate developing a treatment. There are some moves to see if we can accelerate the vaccine process using perhaps um, some existing techniques and then adapting that to a new to a new uh, pathogen. But um, it's slightly easier in a vaccine than in a drug. You know, you can imagine that if we synthesised a chemical in a laboratory and then walked straight through, skipped all the rest of the steps and walked straight through to to provide, uh, say to someone, look, I know you're feeling pretty lousy and we'd like to try this on you. Um, They should say no and we should all say no. Um, So this is essentially a a very long process and it's iterative because it has to be because, you know, drugs can hurt people as well as help them. So... um, so the, the drug solution, unless it is already on the shelf, it's an existing product that has been um, through much of the base testing, then um, you know, it, it is going to take a long period of time and it isn't going to be quick enough. So then you're left with the, the vaccines. Now, I think with coronavirus, from what I understand, uh, there are some treatments out there that, um, that are existing and that look promising where there's already a, a body of data generated. And so, um, so we may be in better shape there, but it's not my area. But it does tell you that you have to invest in uh, in the product development side of things, 
before something actually happens. And if you don't do that, we will be in this position again and again. And uh, that requires us to accept the fact that some of that money will end up with something that sits on the shelf. And probably one of the best examples of that is antimicrobial resistance, where, again, the market has not worked out. It doesn't drive the innovation that's needed. So the fact that the companies are not going to make massive return on it means that it lost attention. And so somebody else has to step in and um, we're now getting more attention on that, but it has been a lag that was unnecessary. We could have invested in it at risk knowing that antimicrobial resistance for every single infectious disease will come. It just is a part of life that they, they will mutate to drugs, they will mutate to the person and uh, we're going to see new infections. And so we need new medicines and we need to invest in those. And when the market won't return for those commercial organisations, we need to have other mechanisms. Now, you've said earlier that um, rather than using uh, public funding to to finance the, the drug development, you were able to use private funding. Um, and to that end, you founded Medicines Development for Global Health with the objective of undertaking end-to-end development of drugs for neglected diseases. So uh, where <laughs> can you explain how this is financed um, in a way that, that is different to a, a usual pharmaceutical company? Yeah, look, it, it is a... Uh, so the, the model of what we've done to date and the model of what we want to do in the future, that, that might be different. So far, we um, so I set the company up and provided the initial um, uh, backing to, to get it up and running. Um, and then we, we've done consulting work over the years to provide revenue that's essentially kept the doors open, but not much more than that. Uh, there's not enough revenue to do proper drug development when you're doing consulting. It's just um, the quantum is so different. So we have, uh, for the moxidectin program, we received an investment to do the work that we needed to do from a group in New York called the Global Health Investment Fund, which is a, uh, a social venture fund that was established by, uh, essentially underwritten by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Uh, but it includes JP Morgan and um, GSK, Pfizer, Merck, some really big organisations, some uh, national contributions like the Canadian government as well. Uh, to see if the social venture model of investing to do good but also to get a return on that investment could work. So we applied to them uh, back in 2014 and we applied to them. They fully understood that onchocerciasis or river blindness is a disease where no one can afford to pay for the medicine. So we had to find the money else in, in, in a different way um, and they understood that. The way that we've done this is through, uh, again, a US FDA system called the Priority Review Voucher. The Priority Review Voucher is a really weird system that would take um, eight podcasts to explain. Uh, but uh, in short, it it entitles the holder of that voucher. It's like a Willy Wonka voucher. It <laughs> entitles, golden ticket. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, it, it gives you the opportunity to um, accelerate the review of your next drug or give it priority review. So standard review through the FDA is 10 months. A priority review is six months. It's the same level of detail. It's just accelerated slightly uh, by four months. So for us, 
in the not-for-profit sector or for uh, the types of diseases that we work on, that's not really very valuable. But they give us one of those when you get the drug approved um, for these particular diseases. What we are able to do with that is to sell it to someone for whom it's worth a lot of money. And, uh, and so these things have been selling in the range of 67.5 million US to 350 million US. And the current selling range is around about plus or minus 100 million US dollars. Because the holder of that, if they have a drug that wouldn't have qualified for prior review and it's a billion dollar drug and you save four months, and billion dollar drug, by the way, that means billion dollars per year. So the, the amounts of money here are, are vast. So if they're making a billion dollars per year and you save four months, then very clearly you're going to be saving a lot of money. So it's worth it for you. So we receive one of these. We sold one of these. And just again, to be clear that we it doesn't go with the drug doesn't leave us. The license stays with us. We are still the license holder. We still have the drug. But this voucher has now been sold to a company called Nova Nordisk. Um, and they bought it from us last year. And that's provided us with the revenue to return the investment to the Global Health Investment Fund, but also then to fund the work that I described earlier, which is, uh, um, you know, again, expensive, but that's what uh, we are here to do. So It's really amazing. And I understand you're now turning your attention closer to home, um, uh, recognising that the, the problem of scabies, which is especially endemic amongst Indigenous communities in Australia um, may also be able to be treated through moxidectin. Um, what what plan do, do you have moving forward? So with moxidectin in scabies, we, you know, the profile of the drug looks really encouraging. And, uh, and so we, first you need to establish if it does work. And secondly, if it does work, then at what dose? So we, we come back to a fairly early stage of development called phase two. And, uh, and so that that clinical trial has been set up. We have our, um, uh, we've just started that study now in, there are four different sites. Uh, three of those are in France and one of them is in Australia in Darwin. And, uh, and so that study is now underway. We're hoping for some answers by probably the third quarter of this year to know whether or not the drug, as I said, works and then at what dose. Um, and from there, we then go on to the larger comparative studies where we compare to the current standards of care one of which is a, a cream that uh, is applied head to foot and left on overnight, has to be applied even under the fingernails, uh, and you have to apply it to all of your your family members and contacts, which is really what drew us to think, you know, th it's a very effective treatment, but it's still endemic. The disease is still endemic in these communities, and why is that the case? And, of course, it's completely unrealistic to expect that um, that a community is going to be able to treat themselves with this kind of approach. So we thought a single oral pill would be a fantastic outcome if we can get that to work. Um, so that's what we're in the process now of finding out if that works. If it does, then hopefully it will simplify the regimen for the people who are affected by this um, disease and infected with it. And, uh, and it should potentially, it has the potential to to be a single treatment that will last for quite a long time. So it should provide some form of uh, prevention of the disease as well. Now to finish, there was a point you made in your acceptance speech last night um, about health equity, which is really at the heart of, of why you do what you do. Yeah. 
and you had a sympathetic audience last night and I imagine you have a sympathetic audience to this show as well in that we all believe in health equity and the importance of access to healthcare. But how does that value motivate you, um, you know, when when you are 10 years into a 20-year development process and it is really hard? How, how does the, the vision of health equity motivate you? I think it's, it's something that uh, it just stays with you as as almost the um, the backdrop of everything that you do, because a lot of my life is spent on teleconferences and video conferences and in a plane and uh, in meetings, um, discussing data, discussing finance, discussing things that are largely unrelated, uh, you would think, to the core principle of providing better healthcare for people. And I know that I, you know there's so many things that I'd love to do. I'd love to provide everyone with clean water and safety and resolve domestic violence and get, uh, you know, an education standard for everybody. You know, those are things that I'd love to do, but I only have one skill set and the skill set is to create um, or go through the process of, of creating a medicine. And, uh, and it's fortunate that when you do that and you do that well, a medicine can be enormously impactful for a, a very large number of people. So it's only one thing, but it is something that um, that I can do. And so when you're tired and sitting on yet another flight to go somewhere, which you'd rather not do, um, it, it is something that stays with you. And I know that for, you know, I'm sort of representing a team here and by extension the, the group at Tropical Diseases Research at um, the WHO and all the other groups are involved in this type of work. That um, that we do it because of the ability of a medicine to change lives and to help address that health equity core principle. It's it's really the driving force yeah. behind what we do. And at some point in the next few years, all going to plan, you will see this drug prescribed on mm. mass to people, and that I imagine that'll be a really pivotal moment in your life. It will be. It will be incredible. I think the, the thing is that the, the drug has the promise of accelerating the elimination of this disease, of, of river blindness. And it has the potential to, um, to help be one of the elimination tools in a bunch of other diseases as well, including scabies, you know, important, um, significant diseases. So, uh, you know, really our job is to make sure that we do do the most that we can to, uh, to make that come true. And if that does happen, and it does lead to the acceleration of the elimination of this disease, building on everyone's work over decades, then that will be a, an absolutely amazing outcome. You could just hang up your boots at that point and think that's been great. Um, but, you know, for us, we, we feel that the skill set that we have and what we do, if we continue to do that well, we can have impact on other things as well that we're looking at now. We're starting to think about some of the other areas where there are um, there are perhaps some pharmaceutical approaches that could be beneficial, such as with paediatric formulations um, that are rare in these sorts of diseases. Mm. Uh, and I come from a company uh, called Gilead that is famous for putting uh, HIV medicines and hepatitis C medicines together in a single pill to simplify regimens. And there isn't much demand for that in the global health sector so far. But we'd love to see if that is something that people would like to explore because um, we think that that could be also helpful. So there's lots of things that we could do that we're excited by, not just pure drug development or discovery and development, um, 
but also better formulations, better presentation, um, more palatable formulations. There are things you can do around the edge of a drug that can make a difference. So we're also interested in those sorts of things as well. Yeah, I'm really excited to, to follow this journey in yeah. the next few years. Thank you so much for being on the show, Matt. No, you're very welcome. Thank you. That's all for episode 69 with Mark Sullivan. I hope you enjoyed it. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the episode, particularly given that health systems and pharmaceutical companies are so topical at the moment. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn via Goodwill Hunters or you can jump on our website www.goodwillhunterspodcast.com.au if you'd like to learn more about Mark's work. We've also included a link to his aid profile along with John Reader by the Development Policy Centre in our show notes. Until next week, wishing you all a safe, happy and healthy week wherever you are. This is Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn. See you next week.